right now, Brittany and I are leading a young adult group at our house through one of C.S. Lewis's, in my opinion, my favorite work of C.S. Lewis's books, The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, he has this imagery of hell in which people fight with one another and because they can't get along with one another they move away from each other and when you move to another neighborhood your neighbors can't stand you they move away or you move away and basically there's this there's this imaginative we don't know what hell's really like but there's this imaginative picture of a bunch of people who want things done their way and for themselves to the degree that no one can tolerate each other so they keep moving away from each other till they're millions of miles away and there's one part in the book where it talks about, well, someone got a glimpse of Napoleon Bonaparte through a telescope, and it took him a thousand years to travel there to see him. Because of the nature of sin and its desire to be its own king, its desire to put the self on the throne, the word we use for this is autonomy. We want to be autonomous beings who are in charge of our own selves. We saw this last week, right? With the idol of self. What happens is if you want to be in charge, you have to sever people out of your life. You have to isolate yourself from others. Or you have to risk becoming a servant of their kingdom. You see what I'm saying? If we are all trying to enthrone self, if we're all trying to be autonomous, then your presence in my proximity is a threat to my dominion. You must either submit to me or I must submit to you, which then causes us to sever each other, to keep each other out or distanced. And one of the problems we have with modernity is that people are lonely we're connected. We're all connected with the internet and some of us with social networks and we know more things than anybody else. We know things that happen across the nation within seconds. Actually, crazy thing is you can know what's happening halfway across the world before somebody who is in the coffee shop next door knows about it. Right? There could be a bombing and the person on the other side of that city won't even know about it, and I do before them. Like, that, that's just insane. That's the kind of connectivity that we have, yet we're no more connected to each other. We're more lonely than ever before because we're all independent, self-serving machines who like their autonomy. So the self is really good at severing people. It's really good at cutting people out. Last week, we saw that this was Babylon's attitude. I am... And there is no other besides me. I am the sole core of reality. There's no other reality apart from me. And our nation, our culture at large, has adopted this attitude. The same attitude the serpent gave to Adam and Eve, saying, Hey, you'll be, you'll be like God. You'll get to call the shots. You'll get to be your own head honcho. Do you remember how... Isaiah called them out of this. So if you will, look um, at chapter 48, verse 20. Just a few verses before our chapter tonight. 48, 20, he said, 
Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. This attitude of I am and there is no one besides me. This attitude of individualism, the idol of self, or meatitis, someone in here has said, or the religion of me. No, meosis? What was it? Meitis. Inflammation of the me. Inflammation of the me. That's someone... Yes. That's... What did I say about talking? Just kidding. So he's asking us to go out from Babylon, to leave this ideology, this worldview. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. God is the one who can save us from ourselves. We can't save ourselves from ourselves. We're the problem, so we're going to keep confounding the problem when we try to save ourselves. He's the one who will redeem his servant. They, verse 21, did not thirst when he led them through the wilderness, through the deserts, I mean. He made the water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. And so chapter 48 ends with this recollection of how God led Israel through the wilderness and he provided for them with water. So when, when we are called out of the idolatry of self, we don't have to fear because he will take care of us. But who's going to look out for me if I don't look out for me? Don't worry. God will guide you through that. Now, so we have this problem, right? With um, We have a world that's divided against itself, that's isolated from itself, that can't get along. There's a lot of severing going on because... We love me. In our passage, it's going to say that God loves the exact opposite. Right? God does the opposite. We like to sever because we love ourselves, but God, God gathers. God brings people back together because he gets them to stop focusing on themselves and gets them to start looking at him. The way he does that is through a figure we're going to see in Isaiah for the next four teachings. A figure called the servant. And the servant is the one whom God is going to send to show the world that you don't have to look out for yourself. You can be okay by looking out for your neighbor. That's what a servant does. The one who engages in the act of service dies to the kingdom of self. So, what is the cure for meitis? What is the cure for individualism? What is the cure, or what's going to be the final takedown of the kingdom of me, myself, and I? It's service. It's servanthood. So God sends to us a servant so that we can be served And then join him in serving the world. It's serving, not severing the world that we want to be about. Okay. So Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, He named me. 
who's going to look out for you if you don't look out for you? God knew you before you were born. I think God's got you covered. Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. In other words, he made me a tool. I was useful to him. Verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with Yahweh and my recompense with my God. Okay, so here we have this interesting tip off. You are my servant, Israel, verse 3 said. The servant is Israel. But what we're going to see soon, and I think some of you will know already, is that the servant figure is also Jesus. See, Jesus comes to earth to serve us, to do what Israel failed to do. Israel was not very good at serving the nations. Israel got very, they went into self-pres mode, self-preservation. And we'll see that when we get to the Gospels. But right now, God is calling them to be servants. And then, so it's kind of confusing because Isaiah is like, right? You know, right? He gets this vision of the servant and he'll be like, that's us, guys. That's us. We're supposed to be servants. And then at times he'll talk about the servant as a single individual. They pull out his beard. How can you do that to a nation? <laughs> so Isaiah is as if he's seeing this magnificent servant figure in the future, but he can't quite make out, is it a person? Is it Israel? The answer is it's both. Jesus comes and represents the people of God and he serves But I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to see there's one more servant in this text. Okay, so you see now in verse 4 that the servant worries, ah, I've labored in vain. And sometimes you and I will choose to be servers rather than severers. And we will feel like it's not getting anywhere. Nobody notices me. People don't thank me. They, in fact, treat me even more rudely. I've become somehow the household slave. I've become Cinderella. Yeah, that might happen. Only for a moment are you going to feel a little down. Because then it says my recompense or my repayment, my reward is with my God. So now verse 5. Now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, remember that's the nickname for Israel. So here we see the servants different than Israel. To be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Yahweh sending the servant to gather his people back to him. Why do they need gathering back? Because remember how Babylon is the one who came and scattered Israel. Remember, Babylon, in their ambition to take over the world, has conquered their capital, Jerusalem, has destroyed their temple, and took the best of the people, leaving the poorest, and shipped them off to Babylon. The people of God have been severed from their homeland because of the Babylonian empire who had that attitude we heard about. I am, and there is no other beside me. Kingdom of self. Babylon's self-centeredness has severed the world. 
It has divided people, ripped mothers from children, and, and scattered the nation around. But God's saying, look, that's how the world works. That's how Babylon works. That's how selfish people work. But I am going to send a servant who is going to gather, not scatter, not sever. He's going to serve and gather the people of God back together. Verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. <laughs> Sounded like a pretty cool mission, right? My servant is going to go gather all the scattered people of the world and they're going to be one under God again. It sounds like an amazing task. Like what if God called you and said, you're going to bring all of the people of God and save them and bring them back together. You're going to gather all the lost scattered people of the world. You'd be like, that sounds like a pretty big job, right? You would be like the most amazing person saving so many people right but here's what god is saying here in verse six Nah, that's too light of a thing that's that small deal i don't i don't think i can limit my servant to just bringing back israel to god i will also expand his mission so look how verse six continues i will make you as a light for the nations the whole world Because let's face it, the whole world has been severed, not just Israel. So yes, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's what the servant is going to do. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Wow, in verse 7, there's a turn again. There's some discouragement. The servant is going to be despised. He's not going to be popular. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves Because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So yes, you will be despised, my servant. Not everyone's going to be into unity. They're going to be into being divisive and protecting myself and all the other competitors from my kingdom. Cut you off, and then you're there gathering all the losers of the world together. That's what the people of God generally are, the losers of the world. Here we are. Not everyone's going to like what you're up to. No. You can't befriend them. You can't talk to them. But in the end, the kings shall see and arise and the princes shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful. In the end, every knee will bow, every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And his people will be there behind him as the rest of creation recognizes. And verse 8 continues. Thus says Yahweh, in a time of favor, I have answered you. 
In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. So what you see there is he's a lot like the servants, a lot like Joshua. He's going to be sent out. Um, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. So he's going to the people to establish the land. As Joshua led Israel into the promised land, the servants going out to the nations and leading them to a new land. Verse 9, saying, the servant's going to be saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. So there's liberation. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. The mountains will become roads. My highways shall be raised up. Behold, all these shall come from afar. And behold, all the, uh, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. I have no clue what that land is. But the point isn't the territory itself. It's that from everywhere. Even a, a place as far as Syene, who no one really has heard of, right? I haven't heard of it except for this verse. Um, from everywhere, they're going to be coming. That's the great gatherer of God. That's what his servant's going to do. Okay. Now, there's this language of the way. Um, look at verse the middle, verse 9. They shall feed along the ways. All the bare heights shall be their pasture. Verse 10, like Israel in the wilderness, right? They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind or sun shall strike them. They're being led. And then in verses 11, in verse 11, we saw the mountains being made roads and the highways being raised up. This is all borrowing from the same image that launched this whole section of Isaiah. Do you remember chapter 40? Let's go back to chapter 40. Now, while you go to Isaiah 40, it's to your left, I want to remind you that, <laughs> sorry, I want to remind you that Isaiah is in three movements. And we call, I'm calling them movements instead of just parts because each um, of these parts has such a different feel as if it's a symphony that a part, it's not just like a part two, just like part one. These, these different sections are different movements with different themes and different emotions and different language and different climax and crescendos, right? So in the first movement, the first 39 chapters of the book, there's this question of who will you trust when things get tough? Will it be Egypt? Will it be Assyria? Will it be Babylon? Will it be the other nations? Or will it be Yahweh, the king of all these nations? 39 chapters for Isaiah to plead with them to trust Yahweh. Then, starting in chapter 40 and going through 55, we come to movement two, which is where Isaiah becomes a poet who's offering comfort to a people who made the bad choice not to trust Yahweh and have been scattered, severed by the Babylonians. He's looking into the future and he's going to encourage them with comfort. Then, down the road, we'll get to movement three, which is a great crescendo, and the new heavens and new earth are talked about. So for now, 
Movement two, comfort, begins in chapter 40. Verse one, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. So Israel, when you finally do get punished by the Babylonians, know that there's going to be a day when Yahweh says, it's done. Comfort, you've, you've been more than punished for your sins. Everything's pardoned. And now verse 3. All four of the Gospels either at the very beginning or very early, quote this next verse. So when is this comfort? When is this pardon for sins? When that voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Remember, that's John the Baptist, the Gospels tell us. John the Baptist is that voice proclaiming in the wilderness and making all the roads straight and smooth because it's Jesus who's the one who's bringing comfort and pardon. And he's coming on this path and he's going to invite all the people to follow him on this path. And Isaiah is inviting the people in exile in Babylon it's, it's, this, is, this isn't just for them because Jesus came and said the same thing to us. There's a way being made in the wilderness in all the chaos and barrenness and death and, and, and survival and look out for yourself of the wilderness of this world. There is a way that's being pushed through that. The mountains are being lowered. The valleys are being raised. The rocks are being removed. And there's bumper pads so you don't get lost. Chapter 35 put it that way, that even the dullest of my people shall not get lost on this path. That there is a way going through the wilderness. And that was hopeful. But, remember how Israel was discouraged? Like, yeah, but Yahweh bailed on us. We can't follow him. And then he said, oh yeah? Well, chapter 40, verse uh, 28. Have you not heard? Have you not known? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Yes, even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, you're worried that walking on this way is going to be tiring? It's going to be burdensome? Oh, no, it's not. Because if you wait on me, God says, I will give you wings to carry you through this. But, as we saw, Israel loves idols and idolatry. So we had four weeks of talking about idols. We'll cap it with chapter 46. You might remember this. Chapter 46, verse 7. They lift it, the idol. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there, and it cannot move from its place. That's the idol. 
But look at Yahweh in verse 3, 46, 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and O remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. There's a way, but people are getting tired because they're carrying their idols on the path, and you're getting exhausted. But God is saying, No, I will carry you if you get rid of these idols, stupid idols, which literally, because in other passages, Isaiah was saying, they don't talk. Okay. And one of the main idols in our society is the self. So as long as we keep putting ourselves first, you think that, oh, this is how I got to survive, this is how I'm going to make it, you're actually going to be dragging yourself down. God wants to rescue us from that. He wants to carry us. He wants us to put ourselves down. And so we see Isaiah in this chapter 49 echoing this way, this path, when he had said, they shall feed along the ways, they shall not hunger or thirst, the sun won't scorch them or strike them. Then verse 11, I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. That's the great leveling that we saw in chapter 40. All the rough terrain is going to be made smooth. The barrenness of the wilderness, I will provide for them. So go out from Babylon, he says. Leave the idolatries of the world. Leave the philosophies that I have to put myself in the center of the universe or that material things are the only thing that really matter or that pleasure is the only thing that really matters. Put these idols in the garbage can and wait on Yahweh because he will give you wings and help you soar through the wilderness so that we finally get home so that we're no longer severed and scattered, but we're gathered right there with God. Not in our kingdom, which is continually severing everyone from each other, but gathered in God's kingdom. Not in my kingdom where I say, you, 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 you are all my servants, but in God's kingdom where there is one servant, his son. And then we all become servants of his kingdom. This is the call. Isaiah is seeing that there is a path. And once we are on it, once we ditch our idols, once we let the servant grab us and put us on this path to gather us and to bring us together, once we let him be the light to the nations and the salvation of God being revealed through him to us, once we get there, God wants us to bring others on the path too. He wants us to bring others on the path. The self, it severs everyone. Get out of my way. Don't get in my way. Don't take my things. That's mine. Competition. But God gathers. He's fixing all this through his servant. And then he's calling us. He's calling us to serve. The church serves. Just like the servant who's teaching us to serve, to cure our selfishness, he's then going to send us to serve. Okay, so. We 
Why don't you go over to Genesis chapter 12. course I did that. I closed my spot in Isaiah. Okay. Genesis 12. We see the calling of Abraham. And what I'm really wanting to highlight is the part where Jesus, where God says that the servant, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Okay. So in Genesis 12, you see this. Now, Yahweh called to Abram, who will later be known as Abraham, go from your country. Didn't Isaiah say that to the people? Go from Babylon. And he's saying to us to go from your idolatries because this way is too good to be held down by your idols. So Abram, in a world full of idolatry, the Tower of Babel was just built. It was just destroyed uh, because the people couldn't get along with each other. They all severed each other, right? And they're all scattered around the face of the earth. Out of this mess, God picks Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you, of you, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So here we go. I'm going to bless you so that you be a blessing. So if the servant serves us, it's so that we will become servants. Um, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, this is huge, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram, I'm picking you and I'm blessing you so that as you get blessed, you will then become the conduit through which all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the post Babel, uh, the post Tower of Babel scattered world will be blessed through you. That's what I'm up to. I need a people that I can pour my blessings into so that then they let those blessings out to the people around them. It's a great story. That's the beginning, right? This is the script. So we have a people, Abraham, who becomes the people of Israel, who becomes Jesus, who then gains a following called the church as a part of this. They are the people. They're blessed. The blessing is supposed to go to the ends of the earth. But Israel doesn't always get this. Please go to 1 Kings. First, Fast forward to 1 Kings. First Kings chapter 8. So it's just to your right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, for Second Samuel, for Second Kings. So First Kings 8. And, and honestly, if it's hard for you to like find things, I would rather you not miss everything trying to find a page and then we're already on the next one. So if it's hard for you, just absorb it. You can always get the listen online and look it up later, right? Um, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. So where we're at in this section here is Solomon just built. He's the second king of Israel. And he just built the temple. God's house went from a tent 
to this magnificent building. And this is what he prays. It's part of his prayer. 1 Kings 8, verse 41. He's praying over the dedication of the temple, and here's part of its mission. Likewise, when a foreigner, that's someone from another nation, who is not of your people, God, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that I, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Wow, part of Solomon's mission with building the temple is so that it would become a beacon For the rest of the world to come and gather. No longer scattered in our different gods and idols and wars. But to come underneath this God. Okay. The irony of 1 Kings is that this happens only a couple chapters later. Look at chapter 11. The nations come. But what does Solomon do about it? 11 verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh Moabite Ammonite Edomite Sidonian and the Hittite woman from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel you shall not enter into marriage with them was fine that they got along but not marriage um Neither shall you, shall they with you, for surely, this is why they couldn't marry, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon did that anyway. He married them. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princess, uh, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. That's sad, isn't it? He builds his temple and prays that the foreigners will come. Oh, they come. But he marries the beautiful ones of the foreigners. And then rather than bringing them to the temple, he lets them take him to their gods. So much so that look at 11 verse 7. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So in the mountains around the temple, he's building these altars to other gods. Ah, oh, epic fail. So, of course, this starts the nation's um, addiction to idolatry, right? And eventually, we learned from previous passages um, that Israel fell because of idolatry. And that's why Israel is being talked to by a prophet saying, Hey, hey, hey when, you guys are fi- when you guys are scattered and severed from your land and you're living in Babylon because of your idolatry, you need to understand these things. That's why Isaiah is talking to this exiled people. Because they were idolators. They lost their land because they lost their God. And so he's calling them back. You guys will be restored. God's still with you. But they lost their land because they lost their God. Okay. 
So as a result of this, Israel becomes incredibly, and of course, as we're going to see, they come back to their homeland in Jerusalem. They build it up a little bit, but they don't have their own king. They're ruled by other kingdoms. And finally, we get to the New Testament. They're in Jerusalem. They're in parts of their promised land. And Jesus walks around. And he starts doing servant kind of things. Starts healing people. Washes the feet of his disciples. But every now and then, he runs into people who don't like him. And their arguments are usually centered around things like, did you see who he was eating with? Or, you just broke the Sabbath, you rule breaker, you. It seems so petty to us, doesn't it? But here's what had happened. When Israel returned to their land after their Babylonian bondage, they said, never again, never again. We will never succumb to the idolatry of the nations. So, what they did is they developed some incredibly um, strict things that made them Jews and everybody else, everybody else, heathens. So, two things high on that list was the Sabbath. Nobody else keeps the Sabbath. We keep the Sabbath. This will keep us totally different. And when Jesus comes around and starts breaking the Sabbath, <gasps> you're breaking down our wall that's keeping us separate from the pagans. What are you doing? That's why they get mad at him. So the Sabbath and also their food laws. Now, we all know, because we studied Leviticus some time back, that they had certain things they could not eat. Very well and good. But part of their food laws included by Jesus' time, it wasn't just what you could eat, but it was also who you could eat with that mattered. So the table was a sacred thing with sacred food on it and sacred people around it. But when Jesus started to break those borders and eat with anybody, religious leaders got really upset. What are you doing? You are breaking our security network. The fence is coming down. This guy is dangerous. Before you know it, all the pagan influences will be coming back in and God will never send us the Messiah. Ironic, right? (laughs) So Jesus um, shows them a different way. Jesus serves, right? He washes his disciples' feet. And then, and then the church is born, right? After Jesus ascends into heaven. And the early church, look at Acts. Um... Well, actually, no, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. Go to Luke. Luke chapter 1, please. Chapter 2. I'm all over the place. Luke chapter 2. I, I would just be in, I would be in error if I didn't bring you to this, so we got to do it. Okay, so do you remember what Isaiah had just said? Um, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Okay? Now, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus has been born. Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to do the circumcision thing. By the way, circumcision was another one of those little barriers between them and the heathens. Um, so Jesus is getting circumcised, following the good Jewish codes. And then there's this man named Simeon who meets him in the temple. All right? Now look at Luke 2, verse 27. And when he came in the spirit, this is Simeon, when he came in the spirit into the temple, 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Look at this verse. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. A light for the Gentiles. That's what Isaiah had said. I'm going to make my servant a light for the nations was the word there. Gentiles is the Greek for nations. So we see Jesus is associated with this very servant we're studying tonight in Isaiah 49. Okay, now go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And while you go to Acts 13, let's catch you up. So Jesus ascends into heaven, sends his Holy Spirit down to his followers, who then begin to spread the news that he's king of the world and the forgiver of their sins. They eventually, because of the very people I didn't like Jesus because he was bringing heathenism into their nation, these people kick the apostles out of Jerusalem. So there's more severing going on. They even kill one of, the, one of them. And then there's this day when Peter gets a vision. And through this vision and a series of events, he meets some Gentiles asking him about God. Do you remember Solomon's prayer? That the nations would come to this place to inquire of God? Well, the temple's now the church. And they come to Peter and they start inquiring about God. But Peter's hesitant, right? Uh... I've never stepped foot into a Gentile house. I've never shared food with a Gentile. I'm a good Jewish boy who keeps the wall up between us. But I had a vision. And God told me not to call unclean what he has made clean. Here I go. And remember how he got in trouble when he got back to the church in Jerusalem? Like, how dare you eat with Gentiles? We saw your Instagram. And then Peter said, but God did this and that and that. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I can't argue with that. And then in Acts chapter 15, they're going to all meet up in Jerusalem and finally vote. Oh, yeah, okay. Maybe the Bible the whole time has been asking that God would use us to bless the nations. So the Gentiles were in on the church. Okay? But it was a journey. And so we're going to see what happens in Acts 13. So Paul and Barnabas are preaching... And in verse 44, um, verse 42, Acts 13, 42, as they, Paul and Barnabas, they're out on a mission trip, right? They're in Gentile towns, they're preaching about Christ, but they're starting in synagogues. That's a Jewish gathering place. As they went out of the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that's a Gentile who went through circumcision and baptism and now keeps the Torah, converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Okay, so the next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds and all the dirty heathens that were amongst them, 
they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out, spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Then behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Whoa. For the Lord has commanded us saying, and once again, we see Isaiah 49 verse six. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is exactly Isaiah 49, 6. Yes, that was Jesus. But now do you see what Paul says? God commanded us to be a light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. So what Jesus came to do, he's now passed on to us. So when we read the servant in Isaiah, yes, on one hand, this is the nation of Israel. But on the other hand, it's the son of God who was born within the nation of Israel, who led the nation of Israel out of their darkness. And third, it's the people who followed the son of God, who's the servant of the nation of Israel. And now they are becoming the servants. Friends, this is what we're still doing. Acts never actually ends. The book of Acts finishes with a cliffhanger. Paul's in prison. We don't know if he's going to get beheaded or if he's going to get liberated. And he's just like, yep, that's it. To be continued. And either Luke forgot to continue it, or he basically said, here, church, for the next 2,000 years, you write the ending. And the question is, have we taken up the role of servant Or are we still serving the kingdom of self? The kingdom of God has asked us to lay all that down and to serve him because he has served us. And the way that we can serve him, yes, we can sing our praises and we can praise and we can read scripture. Those are great things. But the other way we can serve him is by taking all the other people Onto that path, that way that's going through the wilderness and saying, come, drop your heavy burdens and idolatries and come and take the wings of the servant and let's go somewhere. For the world is dividing, it's severing, it's isolating because of its individualism. But the kingdom of God is saying, enough with all that. I want to bring everyone together. The Tower of Babel was good in coming together. It was bad in coming together so that we can make a name for ourselves. But we're coming together to make a name, as Solomon prayed, that this house would declare the greatness of your name. And that's what the church is. We're the house of God We're walking on that path. We're doing our best to drop the weights and the idolatries and the sins. And we're trying to bring others. And we're not just simply bashing a Bible in their face and saying, you've got to get with it. We're serving them into the kingdom. We're serving them into the kingdom. Because as we choose to serve people, your your strong, self-centered, autonomous being, this kingdom will crumble It cannot handle serving others because the minute I serve someone, I get down and take Ron's sandal off and wash his foot. I have bowed to the, well, I don't want to, this sounds weird when I say the kingdom of Ron, that's wrong. (laughs) 
But I have, I have lowered myself. Kings don't bow to anybody. I've completely given up on my kingdom. And I am serving Christ through Ron. The servant. This is just one of four passages we're going to see. It's a hard call and it's a hard challenge. But more than our great relevance in culture or our contemporary Christian music or our great Bible teachers or our solid theology, which is more reasonable than atheism, more than any of these things or our, our programs to help people at all of our churches, or our children's ministries, more than any of these things, it's our service to each other that sets us apart. We're not the severers, we're the servers. That's the challenge. It's easy, it's really easy to look at these servant passages and say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But it's harder to recognize that he has served us so that we can serve others. Jesus in John 13 said to the apostles who were stunned that he had just washed their feet, he said, I have done this as an example that you may do so to one another. Yeah. So that's the story about how the servant is going to bring the light to the nations and is through us. Friends, as a as the church, the collective people of God, as the church, the collective people of God, we are not a new thing. We are in this long story, starting with Abraham, to bring salvation to the nations. Yep, it's had its ups and downs. But we're also with Solomon praying that they will come. We're with Christ washing the disciples' feet. We're with Paul and Barnabas saying, all right, if you don't accept the gospel, I don't have to cut you off. I just say, okay, there's plenty more people. If you think we're weird, there's plenty more people who will listen to the message. We are a continuation of this story of how God has chosen a people and he's chosen you. If you're here, he's serving you so that you can then let that go outward. But we must, we must surrender my legislation, my will, my dreams, my passions, my uniqueness, my goes on and on and on. Only when we give it up to God and he gives it back to us can it really be ours. Otherwise, I'm just going to hold on to it and I'm going to keep punching people and pushing them away or just avoiding them in general. Ugh, a strong personality. I'll go start my own thing over here. Like, that's, that's not right. That's self-centered ideology and idolatry. So the cure to individualism that we looked at last week, the cure to this is servanthood. And Christ is inviting us. So tonight we're going to close with receiving that which he's given us. The servant who is beaten, who is torn, who gave his body and blood to us. And as we take that, we are taking upon ourselves his commission as the servant. We are taking that commission onto ourselves We too, we say, as we take it together, we once were scattered and we were severed, but God has gathered us as one and we're going to take the servant's gift so that we can now become his servants and give the gift to the rest of the world.
Please pray that God would make you ready to join the servant in his work.